You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. Well, good morning. Is everybody doing? Yeah, you should be. Some of us were here earlier. Good news. Daylight Savings was saved today. Daylight was saved. Thanks for putting in your time, giving room to all the early birds to be here earlier. Honestly, I just can't wait for next service, third service. We're doing three services. I I expect about an hour from now, folks are going to start arriving (laughs) for the next service. That may put them here just in time for the conclusion. So start praying for their souls, all right? (laughs) Pastor Greg is away celebrating his 40th anniversary with with Pastor Lisa. which I think is a conveniently created cover story to hand off the earliest Sunday of the, morning, of the year for me to preach. I know, what, I know what some of y'all are thinking. You're thinking about the last time I was here, you're like, where's that pillow? Like, uh, I didn't bring the pillow today. If I have to be here, you have to be here, all right? We're all in this together and no ladders today either. I received all of your, uh, all of your hate mail therapy bills for how, you know, you just couldn't handle it. I know some of you are waiting for a breakthrough for God to heal you after that, uh, that fear moment. I didn't bring, I didn't bring the pillow. You, you just got to stay awake today, all right? And uh, listen, sometimes sermons, you know, sometimes sermons, they come with a little bit of ouch, Right? I mean, it confronts some things in your life, and it's a little bit of like, ouch. But I just want to prepare you that because I lost an hour's sleep, there might be a little bit of grouch uh, today as well. Pray for your brother. Pastor likes to say that he is called to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. I've decided today just to afflict everybody. Pray for your brother. I mean, I don't know the last time I needed a nap on Sunday afternoon, a Sunday afternoon nap like I need it today. But I drank so much coffee before service this morning, I'm not going to be able to sleep till Wednesday. <laughs> so please, please pray for your brother. Hey, we are studying the Gospel of Matthew. Pastor has had us in this series now for several weeks, and we've been looking at the life of Jesus. In fact, uh, if you have your, your Bible today, you can turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look at a passage there in just a minute. You know, one of the things that, that happens in the sermons that you hear, you may not pick up on it always, but very often you'll hear a difference in the language that preachers use. They'll say things like, turn to the book of Isaiah, right? Turn to the book of Exodus. But when we talk about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we usually say, turn to the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark. You know that old saying, it's the gospel truth, right? It's because we have used this word to help us understand what it means to know the good news. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have spent time sitting down Having, some of them having walked with him, others of them reporting things that they have learned about him in order to communicate the gospel truth, the good news. And what is the good news? Well, it's in contrast to everything that has been written about in the Bible up until that time. All right? The Old Testament is a story of how you know, God is at work. He, he builds a garden. He puts people in it. He's, he's a God who walks with people every day and talks with them. Uh, He provides for them there in a close relationship. And the story of the Old Testament then by the third chapter of the Bible turns and it's, it's a picture of what happens when we begin to do things on our own. When we make choices for ourselves that distance us from God. That was the the first decision that led to a breakdown in relationship with God was a promise from a serpent 
that if they ate the fruit from that tree, then they weren't going to need God. They were going to be able to do life on their own. Their choice was to, to elevate themselves over their relationship with God and be able to do it on there. And from there, over and over and over again, we have story after story of people who try to do things on their own to make their own way. And we find it moves them further and further away from God. Even that first choice began to build a wall, right? Between the garden that God intended them to be in and now a life on their own. The writers of the Gospels are writing to let us know that the promise that had been made in that third chapter of Genesis, the promise that one day, since all of this is broken, one day God would send a way to bring us back into relationship with Him has finally come. Matthew is writing to help us know that Jesus is the promised one of God, the promised one of God. He uses this term Messiah very much and that's because Matthew is written to a Jewish audience one that was familiar with the Old Testament scriptures that pointed regularly to a Messiah a deliverer that was going to come and bring them back into relationship with God we also recognize in this series that uh, that Matthew was written to help a people following Jesus in a chaotic world they, they were experiencing experiencing things very regularly that, that made a decision to follow Jesus difficult. I mean, they, they were moving away from a cultural religion. They were moving away from some of their families who said, we don't accept Jesus as the Messiah. They, they were moving in, in conflict with a government, uh, the Roman government in particular, that was, that was increasingly uh, finding fault with Christians, blaming them for things. They found them uh, convenient scapegoats in order to blame things like national disasters, like the fire of Rome that got blamed on, on Christians and the church. And, and now they are living, reading these scriptures about Jesus. They're, they're living in a chaotic place. And Matthew is writing to them to help them know what it means to have a life built on Jesus. How to navigate all of the chaos by having a firm foundation. And so I want to look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 21 today. I'm going to read this passage for you today. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is. And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Would you pray with me for a moment? Lord, as we look at your scriptures today, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open to hear your questions, to hear you ask, who is it that, that men say that I am and who do you say that I am? Lord, open our hearts for a revelation from our Father in heaven. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Anybody afraid of Bible words? Right? There's the Bible words. Like when you're in small group, connection group, and somebody says, hey, let's read the scripture together. Who wants to volunteer to do that? 
and you like start pointing at your neighbor, right? Because we get a little nervous about the Bible words, and I, I get that. Uh, you know, and I've told you before, I just learned a long time ago, just say it with confidence and gusto. And it'll probably work, all right? And, uh, and if it doesn't, you know, we'll, we'll learn from it, we'll go forward. But you can pretty much get, but here's the thing. We don't have to be afraid of Bible words because we can't even pronounce stuff that, that we read all the time, right? Look, at, look back here at this verse. I, I've gone back through the passage. I've underlined some words here. It's just going to be things that we're going to kind of draw our attention to. It might be something that's going to cause you to, to jot a note today as, as we work through the scripture. Jesus came to the region of where? Look at you. You're not afraid of Bible words. Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. Now, anybody think they can guess the root word of Caesarea? Caesar, right? You guys, look at you. You're like Sunday school superstars in here. It's awesome. Yeah. It's named after Caesar, the, the emperor, right? And, uh, and this is not the only Caesarea. Uh, somebody told me today they know how to pronounce Warrington because of Warren. And they just kind of think, like, it must be Warren's town. And pretty much that's true, right? You kind of own this place, right? In the, in the great debate... Is it Warrington or Warrington? Like some of you guys got the ING going in there. That's how we sort out the from here's from the come here's, okay? And it's not just around here, Caesarea Philippi. But how many of you, have you ever heard of Philippi, West Virginia? Anybody ever heard of Philippi? It's a college town that is pronounced incorrectly, all right? <laughs> Just laying that out there. Uh, they, they pronounce it Philippi, and I'm like, it's Philippi. All right? Just setting that straight. I know that because I've had experiences. All right? I've had experiences. I traveled with a, a music team, a band. We went to camps and churches when I was in college, and we would uh, sing for Jesus and share the gospel and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, I was the team leader, and so I had, to, I had to kind of book our reservations when we would travel. And I needed kind of a, a midpoint of the state of Pennsylvania to lay over. We were staying in high class, Motel 6, and um, they, they left the incandescent light on for me. Uh, and you used to use a phone connected to a wall to, and a paper map to look at where the, the Motel 6's were. And... Um, and so I found one in this town, kind of in the middle of Pennsylvania. I thought probably that was going to be good for us. And so I, I call. I just remember being surrounded by this ministry team, um, filled with the gracious love of God, every one of them. And I'm on the phone, and I found the town. And so I say, I need to book reservations. All right, now listen, your boy didn't take Spanish in high school. <laughs> I took French, and I'm looking at this town, spelled capital D-U, capital B-O-I-S. I need a reservation in Dubois, Pennsylvania. I'll never forget our sound guy busts out laughing in the room and says, It's Du Bois, you idiot. Du Bois? And I'm the idiot? I just pronounced it Dubois? And I'm the idiot? It's Du Bois, you idiot. These Bible words, Caesarea Philippi, root word Caesar. This is a town set up in honor of the Roman emperor. It's, a, it's, it's actually an interesting story. This is not the first Caesarea that has been set up. Another Caesarea, Caesarea by the sea, has been set up by Herod the Great, which is Philip's father. And so in, in like turn, when he becomes tetrarch, 
and he gets to have a region to rule over, he, he builds a city and he names it Caesarea Philippi. Slides his own name in there just so that when word gets back to Rome that another Caesarea has been set up, they're like, well, who thought to... That's a brilliant name. You know, some, some bureaucrat in, in, Rome, in Rome is like, that, that's brilliant. Yeah, who, who named it? I don't know, but probably somebody named Philip. Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is, is a region that is, is pagan. There's, there's nothing there that's really happening for any of the Jewish feasts or festivals. There's nothing there that's happening that, uh, that harkens back. I mean, even, even right there in that region, before it had been called Caesarea Philippi, it was the region of a, an area called Shiloh. It was where uh, a, a former king had set up uh, cows to be worshipped instead of going to Jerusalem to worship God. I mean, this was not like a high place of like uh, kind of special religious fervor. And so when Caesarea Philippi was established as a Roman uh, city, nobody, nobody kind of cared. We don't really know why Jesus ended up in Caesarea Philippi. The scripture doesn't really tell us. But I believe that it was important for the conversation that he was going to have right here that we read a few minutes ago. He's bringing his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Now for us... It's hard for us sometimes in reading the Bible to kind of capture what was happening for them. I'm, I'm going to try to help fill in some of the blanks. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now this term, Son of Man, was the way Jesus referred to himself. He did that a lot. And, and I, I really think that you, you never find the disciples calling him that, but he called himself that. And I think that it was really to help communicate to them and underscore, I'm, I'm a person like you. I mean, John recorded it this way. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. But to everyone who receives him, to them, he gives power to become the sons of God. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the son of man. He is fully man, fully human. Now, I think this is especially important for uh, the church that was reading this book for the first time. Just years after Jesus had gone to the cross and raised from the dead and ascended to the Father and, and sent the Holy Spirit to, to fill the church with power to expand the gospel. Just years later, churches that don't have fully published Bibles yet are trying to sort out, like, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And how do we make this work? And some churches had started to adopt a teaching that said, well, you know, no, oh, Jesus wasn't like real, like in the flesh. He was a spirit. It was, it was like God working through a spirit. We called him Jesus, but it's not like a real person. I mean, some people would even go so far to say, not like a real person, it's like a metaphor. It's like an idea, right? Jesus, Jesus embodies these ideas for us. No, no, the writers of the gospel that wanted us to know Jesus, wanted us to know that he was for real. He was the son of man. He was the son of human, in human flesh. So he says, who, who do people say that the son of man is? And the, uh, the, the responses are interesting. Some of them say, uh, you're John the Baptist. Some people believe you're John the Baptist. Other people say we, they believe you're Elijah and other people believe that you're Jeremiah. And, uh, and as, as Jesus is, is talking with them and, and kind of hearing this, and, I mean, this is not in the Bible, this is just part of me. Like, they walked around a lot. That's what, that was like their primary mode of transportation, was walking. And so I'm sure as they walked, this dozen or so people and, and others that walked with them, there was probably conversations. And here's the thing, by chapter 16 of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been declaring his kingdom. He's been demonstrating the kingdom has come among the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. And people are being fed miraculously. People are being healed miraculously. People are listening to sermons and not falling asleep miraculously. Come on, come on. <laughs> Nobody falls asleep in sermons till later in the New Testament. That's an interesting story, but not one for today. But it was probably daylight savings time. That's just my opinion. <laughs> Jesus wants to know who are people saying that I am, the Son of Man. Who, who, are, who do they say the Son of Man is? 
And, and they, try to, they try to relate to it. They try to inform him. And so they start uh, listing for him the, the different ones, right? John the Baptist. Now, look, let's give some people some, some, some credit. Okay, they didn't have the Bible like we do. So they don't know he was beheaded a couple chapters ago. Right? They don't have text updates. Right? No news being printed. It's just news spreads slowly. And, and they're cousins. Jesus was a cousin of John the Baptist. So they probably look similar. So people are like, well, this is Jesus of Nazareth doing this miracle. And somebody else is like, nah, I think that's John the Baptist. Have you ever, have you ever run into a celebrity? Have you ever like wondered, is, is that a celebrity? Have you ever been mistaken for a celebrity and played it up just a little bit <laughs> to see where it would go? I mean, people, people are standing on the side of the Jordan. They see baptism. They hear about the preaching. Then Jesus shows up, and he kind of looks like the description that people heard. They're thinking maybe he's John the Baptist. News just hasn't reached them yet. Others say he is Elijah. Elijah, this is interesting to me. Elijah was from the Old Testament, one of the powerful prophets of God. One of the powerful prophets of God that felt like he was all alone as a prophet of God. He wasn't, but he thought he was. A prophet of God who was given special miraculous power, so much so that he could like speak and it would stop raining because God told him to say that, right? Or he could speak and it would start raining again because God gave him that ability. Or when, uh, when everybody seemed to be turning to false gods, Elijah was the kind to challenge them. Like, let's meet up on Mount Carmel and we're going to have kind of a challenge. You ask your God to set fire to your sacrifice and I'll put my sacrifice together. We'll dump a lot of water on it after it hasn't rained in years and years. And water is not a commodity we care about, right? Actually, it's very important, but we're going to just dump water. Just give me more water. Dump on there. And then I'm going to call down the fire of God to fall from the sky and consume this fire. I mean, that, that's the kind of guy Elijah was. And, uh, and if you know the end of Elijah's story, it's kind of interesting. You know the end of Elijah's story? He's found a, a, a kind of a disciple, somebody who's coming along with him, named Elisha. Thank you, Bible, <laughs> for keeping it very clear. Elijah, Elisha, that's always easy to keep up with, right? And so Elisha is following Elijah, he's learning from him, and Elijah gets a word from God that God is about to settle up accounts for Elijah and, and his ministry is over. Time's up, he's got another plan for Elijah, and so Elijah starts trying to go meet with God to get this all sorted out, and Elisha keeps tagging along. And, uh, and Elijah keeps telling him, you stay here, I'm going to go over there and deal with God. And Elisha just keeps following him. It's actually a principle of faith. You just keep following him. All right, that's another sermon. That would be a good one. Elisha keeps following him. Finally, Elijah says, what do you, what do you want? Why, why won't you leave me alone? He says, I want a double portion of the power of God that's working in your life. I want it to work in my life. And Elijah makes him this promise. If you're there when God settles up, then you can have what you're asking for. <laughs> and you know what happens? This whirlwind comes, this chariot comes, and like takes Elijah away. Boom. He was there, and then he wasn't. The wind blows his mantle off, and Elisha finds it laying on the ground and says, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Right? Strikes the water, water parts. It's like a double portion has just fallen on Elisha. And what happened to Elijah? He gone. <laughs> the, the record is that he didn't die. He was just taken to be with God. Now look. All right. Follow me for a minute. If you have grown up hearing and knowing that one of the great prophets of God got to the end of his earthly work, and God said, I'm just going to pick you up on a drive-by <laughs> and take you to be with me. And if he never died, then what can happen? 
he can come back. And so there's this part of their theology that's like, I don't know, but I heard this guy is like preaching and God is listening and working. I mean, it's almost, I heard he went up on a mountain and began to preach. And it's, it's almost like, do you remember Elijah went up on a mountain and God came there? Do you remember that, that Elijah was, was speaking to a nation that had turned their backs on God? But he stood up and said, I'm going to take a stand for God and I'm going to let God's power work through me. And now I'm hearing about this guy, Jesus, but man, it sure sounds like Elijah is back. Some people say you're John the Baptist. Other people, Elijah. Some people say you're like Jeremiah or the other prophet. Now, who is Jeremiah? Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. He wrote a couple of books in the Old Testament prophesying God's plan for his people and how sad it was. He was known as the weeping prophet because these people had, had turned their backs on God and, and Jeremiah is writing to say, I know things are bad. I know Babylon has come and, come and taken over our nation. They've taken away our best and brightest. They've crushed the walls. They've torn down our temple. It was awful. And people are looking around and they're like, wow, that kind of looks like what Rome has done to us. And Jeremiah was given a word from God for his people to say, hang on, I'm coming. Hang on, I'm going to set these things right. I mean, Jeremiah's words end up in the writings of Daniel, right? Who had been taken captive by Babylon. He's quoting Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a voice to people who are going through a tough time under a regime they don't want to be under with a promise that God's going to restore things. Who do, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, some John the Baptist, some Elijah. But you kind of sound like Jeremiah to some people. They're looking for the, the plans and the future and the hope that you have for them. It's kind, of like, uh, it's kind of like that conversation we have. You, you know who he's like, right? You ever have that conversation? You know what that's like? We, we are kind of these people who, uh, who process our understanding through comparison of things we've already known, right? Uh, and that's why I can, I can confidently say that Rasslin, <laughs> Rasslin stopped being real with the WWF, all right? And uh, so what, 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 any of that stuff you've seen, it's not real. All right. Now somebody's going to fight me. <laughs> I know that. It's not real. It was real back then. I can tell you. I watched. I saw it. Hulk Hogan. Andre the Giant. Come on. It was real. It was real. But nowadays, not real. My son. My son loves the NBA. National Basketball Association, for those who may not be keeping up, right? He loves the NBA. I do not stay in touch with the NBA, all right? But now I do because of him. And uh, I think maybe they're flashing his number up right now. <laughs> uh, loves the NBA. Wants me to set up Alexa to wake him up in the morning with a sports report of his favorite basketball team. Which I did, because I'm a loving father. Until I heard the sports report, and it was like such and such team defeated such and such team, 152 to 147. 152 to 140. This is not real basketball. This is, look, come on. I came up in a time when basketball scores barely broke 100. If they did, somebody had been playing the Cavaliers or the Washington Wizards, all right? Like that was the only time that you saw scores that high because people actually played defense back then. That was real basketball, not, not the stuff we have here, right? Or the comparison, who's the GOAT? Who's the greatest of all time? Well, this one, okay, stop it, stop it. How, how do we know? Because every conversation compares the person we're talking about today to, well, I remember Jordan could, right? Or I remember when Elgin Baylor, whoever, right? I remember these great players. And this one reminds me of that. And this one reminds me of that. It's human nature to want to process our understanding through comparisons 
of what we have already known. It comforts us when we feel like we have things figured out. You know, on television, they, they, they have these television shows about like something bad happens, it's a mystery, usually somebody is dead, and there's like a mystery of who did it, right? And if, if you ever watch those shows, uh, have you ever figured it out right before they figure it out? You know what that feels like? So do the writers of those shows. Did you know that? They actually write and direct those episodes so that you'll be able to figure it out right before they reveal it. Because when you do, your brain drops a little hit of dopamine and you feel really cool that you figured it out. I just took somebody's joy away. <laughs> what if we have nothing to compare it to? I was reading recently in the book of Exodus, chapter 15. It's a story right after Israel has been delivered from slavery by walking across dry ground in the Red Sea. You remember that? And here in, verse, in chapter 15, the women grab up their tambourines. Miriam begins to lead them, and, and they're, they're singing. Hopefully they played the tambourine better than me. They're singing. I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider has been cast into the sea. Right? They repeat that a couple times in the song. But here's the thing. I was reading it. This is what it says in verse 3. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And what occurred to me is they're singing this song because they had never known that about him before. Now look, we have the full counsel of the word of God, right? We know all, all kinds of things about God, but they didn't. They were living through. This is what they knew. They knew that God was a covenant maker because of Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation, and, and they were all the great nation. They know he's a covenant maker. They know he's a promise keeper because of Isaac, Abraham's son, who was set to be slain as a sacrifice, but God stepped in and delivered him, right? Jehovah Jireh shows up a, a, a ram in the thicket so that, so that Isaac lives. God's a promise keeper. God is sovereign, and our, our ancestor Joseph, what was meant for evil, has been turned around for good and for the salvation of many people. Joseph, there in the prison, gets set free in order to, to, to interpret Pharaoh's dream and start saving up food, and people live because they've stocked up food when the famine hits. These people know that God makes covenants, He keeps His promises, He sovereignly works, but they have never seen Him as a warrior. They'd never, they'd never been in a battle up until this point. They just tended their flocks. But that day, warfare happened when, when, when the Red Sea was parted, when the army was chasing them. God knew, it says in, in uh, chapter 13, God knew they weren't ready to fight the battle. Because if they started trying to fight the battle, they'd probably give up just go back to slavery. He knew that wasn't ready. He parted the Red Sea. He pushed them through. And then the, the armies of Egypt began to pursue them there through the dry ground. And when, when Israel was through... Our warrior defeated this powerful army and delivered us. And we sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider has been cast into the sea. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. And I just read that. Man, I thought, what are, what are the things about God that I haven't learned yet? What are the things that, that He is that I haven't yet discovered I mean, there are things that, that we kind of know about Him, but what are the things I need to know Him? Who, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, some people say you're like this, and some people say you're like that. And then verse 15, Jesus turns and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Listen, we can't move past this verse without realizing that the same question that Jesus is asking those disciples that day, he's asking you and me today. He's not, he's not, uh, not going to get hung up on what we've heard people say about him. He's going to want to know, who do you say that I am? Because that is what he's here to do. He's here to reveal himself and here 
Simon Peter takes this question, who, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answers. Now, Simon Peter has a habit of kind of running his mouth. We know that about him. But he gets it right, right here. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the, help me, living God. All right, now let's go back to Caesarea Philippi for a minute, okay? Because in this pagan town, uh, there's something that uh, just beyond the name for Caesar and Philip, there's something else happening here. Uh, Philip decided that he was going to build a temple to Caesar Augustus. All right? Because in Rome, they had started this new thing where they would, they, they would vote, the Senate would vote uh, after an emperor was dead about whether or not they were a god. And Augustus had been deemed a god. They deified him. And they built a temple for him in Caesarea Philippi. They built a temple for a dead god. Why in the world did Jesus go to Caesarea Philippi with his disciples? To have this conversation. To stand there in front of the four columns of this temple. Say, who do, who do men say that I am? And who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Standing in front of the temple of a dead God. They're having a revelation that Jesus is the son of a living God. Philip, the son of another leader, Herod the Great, who had, had built Caesarea by the sea. Philip now builds his town, Caesarea. Philip, the son is there, the father is there. They're both dead. They, they, built, they built this temple to a dead God. And who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus is confronting us today to say, who do you say that I am. Look at how he responds to Peter in verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, we know his name is Simon Peter. It was referred to earlier verses that that's how he was referred to, Simon Peter. Peter, Petros, is really kind of the name they were using there in the Greek. And it means stone or pebble. Like the kind of, the kind of thing that you could pick up in your hand and throw at somebody. So the, the type of Petros that you could put in a slingshot and hit a giant with, right? Uh, P Peter is in this for victory over Rome, he's following Jesus, looking for this Messiah to come be the deliverer, right? And he's happy to be the rock. Put, my, put me in your hand, Jesus, and throw me wherever you want. I'm ready to do battle for you. And Jesus says, look, the Father revealed this to you. I'm so thankful, pebble. <laughs> On this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Petras, Petra. Now Petra is a mass of rock. It is a, a, a ledge or a cliff. In Caesarea Philippi, they would have been standing in view at the base of Mount Hermon of, of a ledge, a cliff in front of them. In fact, there was a, a cave right there in the side of the cliff. Jesus is saying the revelation has come. Upon the rock, I will build my church. Listen, Peter did not think that Jesus was talking about him. We know that because of what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. He says, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. 
Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that will make them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Peter says, I'm not the rock. Jesus is the rock. That's what he was trying to say when he said, Petros, I'm so glad you got that. Let me talk to you about some Petra. Let me talk to you about a massive rock. And Peter learns, look, we're not the cornerstone. We are living stones that are putting together a habitation for the presence of God. Peter's saying, look, if your faith is about you, if it makes you the center and the corner, you need to beware. We need to beware with a faith that makes us the center. We need to be, beware of teaching that pushes us to a place where we think that it's about us. Peter walks away from this conversation knowing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He is just a living stone being joined with others around the rock of Jesus Christ. Verse 19, Jesus continues. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. All right, I missed a part. I can't skip that part. I gotta come back. On this rock, I will build my church and what? The gates of Hades will not prevail. I can't believe I almost missed this part. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Remember this, that ledge they were looking at? I remember there was a cave in it. From that cave, the waters from Mount Hermon that, that would melt, uh, the snow would melt and that kind of thing, and it would run down. And so the springs of, of, the, uh, of the Jordan River actually started there and would flow out. And so people had, uh, this was a pagan area, and so they had interpreted that that, that water coming out of there was like, was like the gurgling judgment of demons and like all these gods that were fighting in there and they didn't want any, any mess with that. So they would sacrifice babies by throwing them into the cave, into the water to try to satisfy those false gods, specifically a, a god named Pan, that they would, they would do that in order to try. And they called this area the gates of Hades. So it, was, it was kind of that, that doorway between here and, and there, and we don't want to go there. Now this term, the gates of Hades, shows up for us in, in the book of Job, and it shows up in the book of Isaiah. Now in both of those accounts, it's a euphemism for death. So he's standing in front of the temple that is built for the dead God. Behind that temple is this cave, the gates of Hades. Where, where people are, are, are throwing babies to die because they're afraid of their own death. And he's ended up in Caesarea Philippi to say this. Peter says, you are the son of the living God. And he says, yep. And not even death can stop me. Come on. Not even death can stop what I'm building in my church. He, he's, kinda, he's, starting to, he's starting to change his course a little bit here. In fact, in verse 21, it says, From there he began to set his course toward Jerusalem. And he began to teach them and show them that what had to happen was he had to die and be resurrected on the third day. He's standing in Caesarea Philippi in the face of this temple to a dead God. Behind it is the cave of death. And he says, the gates of Hades will not even prevail against this. Can somebody tell me, how hard do gates fight? How hard do gates fight? Well, they kind of just hang there, right? They, if they do their job, the, the fighters don't get through. But the, there's like no fight in the gates. We sometimes think about what Jesus is saying here as though like the gates of hell are coming against us. The gates of hell are hanging on their hinges. How, how is it that the gates don't prevail? 
It's because we are taking the kingdom of God into the kingdom of darkness and we are pounding on those gates. The church of Jesus Christ that He is building is pushing back the gates. They will not prevail from the power of the Spirit of God. The, the prevalence is not that they're coming against us. It's that we're going against them. And they cannot stand under the power of God. Jesus is saying to them, listen, here's a, here's a big reveal. You're right. You got this revelation from God. I am the son of the living God, the Messiah. But I want you to know that you're involved. And I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And then he goes on in 19 and says, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth. Somebody say bind on earth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, somebody say loose on earth, will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. It's always interesting in the Gospels. Jesus does that a lot. Like, okay, now don't tell anybody. All right. Until his death and resurrection is over. And he says, wait in Jerusalem until my Holy Spirit comes on you and then go tell everybody. Okay. Why? Because he wanted the, the work of God to come forward in his life. It wasn't time yet. He says to them, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. This victory that, that makes the gates not be able to prevail comes down to this. It comes down to your participation in binding on earth what is bound in heaven and loosing on earth what is loosed in heaven. And I want to ask you today, when was the last time you thought about what needed to be bound and what needs to be loosed. For some of us, our, our prayer life is like, God, do something. But we haven't, we haven't waited on God to show us what He wants to bind and what He wants to loose. Have you ever thought about what is bound in heaven? You know, Jesus said, I, I, saw, I saw Lucifer kicked out of heaven. You know what's bound in heaven? Our enemy. He doesn't have free access. You know, he, doesn't, he comes to accuse our soul, but only because the judge lets him and then the judge puts him out. No, no, you don't get to stay here. I'm not listening to that. The mouth of Lucifer is bound in heaven. When was the last time you asked God to bind it on earth? The father of lies. God, bind the mouth of the liar. God, bind it tight, as tight as it is in your presence. Let this earth, let our experience bind the mouth of the liar. What else is bound in, in heaven? Doubt is bound in heaven. There's nobody walking around. I'm not really sure. I, I, I mean, I, wanted, I think so, but I'm not really. There's nobody who's not sure. How, how about this? If doubt is bound in heaven... God, would you begin to bind doubt today in this service? Amen. Would you bind doubt in the heart of somebody who's struggling, who's saying, well, I kind of have heard this about Jesus. I've kind of heard that about Jesus. And now hearing Jesus say, but who do you say that I am? Lord, would you bind doubt on earth as it is in heaven? And what needs to be loosed? Man, Revelation shows us a picture around the throne of God of the praises of God's people rising up always before the throne. Man, that sounds like some praise is loosed in the throne room of God. God, would you loose some praise here? Would you teach us new ways to praise you? Would you put new words in our mouth of praise to God? Let's set something loose here that is already on the loose in heaven. Power and dominion. Who can open the book? The lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth is ready to open the book in the throne room of God. We loose it here. Spirit of God, let the, let the sacrifice of Jesus be elevated in such a way that lives are changed. Set it loose. This is what Jesus taught his disciples when he taught them to pray. Let your kingdom come and your will be done. Where? On earth as it is. In heaven. Man, some of us as believers have bought into this idea that talk is cheap. And I think our words have consequences. Jesus said this is a key to the kingdom. Recognizing that your words have consequences. Your words have the ability to set things loose and to bind things up. Watch your mouth. This is why I think it's so amazing. 
that when the Spirit of God is released in His people, what do, we, what do we see so often is the result? We begin to articulate. We begin to talk. Words of knowledge. Words of wisdom. Prophetic words, thus saith the Lord. Tongues and interpretation. As God begins to move through His Spirit, He begins to activate our mouth. Why? Because He's given us the keys to the kingdom, what we're setting loose, what we're binding, and He's given us His Spirit to help us in that work. Come on. Come on. Somebody's got to realize today He is inviting you to answer the question, but who do you say that I am? And from that time on, Jesus began to explain to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. At the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Do you, do you see that in verse, in, in verse 21 here? The hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Who should the people have been that he was not going to have a problem with? He shouldn't have had any problem with the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. I mean, they were, they were devoted to studying to know what it was going to look like when the Messiah showed up. And he stands right in front of them, and they can't see it. Can I share with you something very personal? I think about the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law a lot. Probably more than, probably more than you would realize. I, I think about these guys all the time. They devoted their life to understanding the scriptures, to knowing what the plan of God was gonna be and what the Messiah was gonna look like, only to have him stand right in front of them and they were totally blind to it. And I, I pray regularly, Lord, let me not have the arrogance of the religious leaders of the Bible. That I get to a place where I feel like I have figured it out. I know exactly how God works. I know exactly what it looks like. I know exactly how he's going to do it. Because when I look at Jesus' life, he ran to a bunch of people that they just couldn't see it. Where's the revelation? Where's the revelation for these religious leaders? Where's the revelation for you and me? To answer the question, who do you say that I am? Oh, if we're going to answer, we need a revelation from God. We need a revelation from God. Peter, flesh and blood didn't give you this answer. A revelation from my father gave you this answer. I was talking to somebody recently who was talking about their relationship with the Lord. I, I'm not sure he knew exactly all the theology and all that kind of stuff. But he was talking about how God had changed his life and that he was praying for his children. And he said, here's, what, here's just what I think. I, I think one day it's going to hit them. And they're going to get it. Like I got it. And I thought, man, call it revelation, call it hit them. Whatever, like, I don't know. <laughs> hit them. But man, do you know what that feels like? To have been in the presence of God and suddenly it, it hits you. A revelation. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. We need a revelation like Peter had a revelation. Jesus went to Caesarea Philippi to ask his disciples, but he's asking us to. Who do you say that I am? Have you experienced a revelation from God of who Jesus is? When you do, it'll lead to a realization that things are different. A realization that things are different. The revelation leads us to a realization. Whoa. This isn't like I've always thought it was. This revelation becomes a key that opens our eyes to be able to... Man, God's at work in ways we never even realized. A realization that things are different. We're not the main character. Jesus is the main character 
and everything is different because of it. A revelation from God that leads to a realization that things are different and finally the restoration of life as God intends it. And that is what binding and loosing is about. It's about making things on earth as they are in heaven. And when we have a revelation that leads to our realization, it quickens us to the restoration of life around us. We start restoring the world through binding and loosing. We watch our mouth. We turn loose in heaven. We bind on earth to allow God to be at work. Would you bow your heads with me? Because Jesus is asking, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Not, not, listen, not what do people say about me. Not even what does the pastor say about me. He's asking you, who do you say that I am? I'm about to pray, but in this room today, maybe somebody who's experiencing a revelation from God. Our Father is revealing to you that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God and that your life can be made right with Him through receiving Jesus' forgiveness, His love, His grace. And right now, somebody in the room may be having a revelation from God that says, my life needs to be turned over to God. My life needs to be made right with God through Jesus Christ. And if that's you this morning, would you lift your hand up? I want to pray with you. You can just slide it up. Let me see it. And then you can slide it back down. I won't call you out. But anybody today who raising a hand to say, I'm having a revelation that I need to give my life to Jesus. This morning in our first service, I saw hands go up. Yeah, a hand just went up. Anybody else today? I, I saw another hand go up. Anyone else? Men and women lifting their hands before God and saying, I, I want to give my life. Right now, listen, this is not because of flesh and blood. This is being revealed by our Father in heaven. The scripture says, in our belief, in our heart, in our confession with our mouth, we receive salvation. So can we pray together? I'll lead a prayer, and as a congregation, we can repeat it. And as you pray it, it can become your prayer to God. In the revelation He's given you, will you pray, Dear Lord, here is my life, such as it is, but I know I need you. I need you to come into my life. I need you to forgive the wrong I've done. I need you to make me right. And I receive your righteousness through Jesus. Make me whole. Let me know you. And I receive you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we take a moment? Listen, this was not revealed by flesh and blood. But God is at work. God is at work in those who would raise their hand and, and pray that prayer. It, listen, it just hit somebody. Stand with me. Because as a church, as a church, we have had a revelation of God. And now we have a realization that things are different. And we are bringing about the restoration of life as God intends it. And so I'm calling us to walk in the revelation of God. I'm calling us to walk in His realization and His restoration. I'm going to ask our small group leaders, our connection group leaders, other leaders, if they'd make their way to the altar today. Jesus' promise was that He was going to build His church so that the gates of hell would not prevail. And I believe that as we close the service today in revelation and realization and restoration, some of us need to move towards God and begin to bind and loose things in our life. And we need somebody to stand with us to pray in that way. These altars are going to be open for you to do that. The worship team is going to lead us in song. In just a moment, I'm going to come back in order to lead us in closure. But let's open our hearts to God. And if you're responding to the Lord, because of His revelation to you or a need in your life, would you come to the altar and begin to allow the work of God to move freely in your life?